This episode of 80 Days is brought to you by HarryBaby.com, the company that makes the funniest Irish-themed t-shirts. Harry Baby shipped 71 countries last year, and to celebrate its 10th anniversary in 2017, Harry Baby aims to deliver to all 196 countries in the world by St. Patrick's Day 2018. You can help by ordering now from HarryBaby.com and use the promo code 80DAYS, that's 80DAYS, to get 10% off. I am willing to wager 20000 I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? I accept, I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days, an exploration podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by three history and geography nerds and an internet power balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little known countries, territories, settlements and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly, I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong and joining me today are... Joe Byrne in Byrne, Switzerland. And Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And in today's episode we'll be talking about Easter Island. Named by Dutch explorer Jacob Rogevain on Easter Sunday in 1722, the island is best known for the 887 extant monumental statues called Moai, which were built by the early Rapa Nui people. The island is one of the most isolated in the world, lying more than 1,300 miles from its nearest inhabited neighbor, and almost 2,200 miles from the closest continental point in Chile. The tiny volcanic island consists of just 163 kilometers squared or 62 miles squared, making it roughly twice the size of Manhattan. The native population, the Rapa Nui, have endured famine, disease, population collapse, civil war, slave raids, and colonial power struggles, and the island was most recently annexed by Chile in 1888. Today, Easter Island is home to around 6,000 people, the majority of whom are descended from the original Rapa Nui settlers. Joe, do you want to tell us where that Rapa Nui name comes from? Nui definitely means big, so it means big Rapa, and there's a theory that perhaps it, it resembles the island of Rapa and the Bass Islands. Uh, however, the island has a separate name, Te Hunua, which means the, the navel of the world or the centre of the world. And I think that name probably better describes how, how the place has been seen by its inhabitants ever since they got here. This island is spectacularly isolated. Um, it's just a speck in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. How it was found is, is um, you know, it, it's just incredible to imagine people in canoes sailing out in the open ocean, finding this little tiny island. And just to describe it to you, it's, um, it's roughly a, a triangle between three volcanic peaks, Manunga Puakatike on the east, Maunga Teravaka on the kind of north-west corner and then the volcano of Ranokau on the bottom uh, like the, the southwest corner and that's basically collapsed the crater's collapsed and it's full of water now so that's quite a spectacular um, site and we'll, we'll come back to that one later because it's the site of some religious um, activities in in Arongo. That's the one that I was looking at in one of the documentaries that uh, is now filled with rainwater most of the time. Yeah, so that's, and it's, that's like one of the one of the key sources of fresh water on the island. Is mm, that right? Ah, cool. And it's it's yeah. there's just a thin wall separating it from the ocean, a cliff to yeah. the ocean. It's all volcanic rock. Uh, it's and it's um, I think geologically the youngest inhabited territory on Earth. So this came up out of the sea pretty recently in geological terms. And again, just to give you uh, a sense of the isolation, 
It's, you know, 3,690 kilometres east Chile. And Rapa Nui or East Ireland is now part of Chile. But, like, only theoretically. It's so far away. It's incredible. Like, if you look at a map or a globe uh, and find Easter Island, you'll see that there's, like, no continental land anywhere near it. It's, it's yeah, it's pretty incredible how how far away from everywhere it is. I read, and this is related to, to your point, Joe, that it, it's also pretty much the last place in the world that people got to coming out of Africa, spreading into, you know, a Fertile Crescent, Europe, Asia. People crossed the, uh, the, the Bering Strait or the land bridge that was there at the Bering Strait thousands of years before they think anybody ever got to Easter Island. And as, as far as they can tell, there's no, there's no reason to assume that there was people there before kind of 500 AD. At the, at the very earliest, yeah. So people really haven't been there that long. Yeah. I, I read also about the, almost the, the mystifying chance of kind of happening upon an island like Easter Island, as isolated as, as it is, but a, apparently it's a, a misconception that, uh, you know, po- Polynesian communities wouldn't have had like scouting parties and like advanced strategies for finding new land because they were expanding populations, you know? While we were researching for this episode... I reached out to an expert on Easter Island. My name is Mara Mulrooney, and I'm the Director of Cultural Resources at the Pernice Poahi Bishop Museum in Honolulu, Hawaii. Mara has visited the island of Rapa Nui about a dozen times so far in her career as part of various research programmes. She was kind enough to speak to us via Skype recently about a number of topics relating to Rapa Nui, and so you'll hear her voice making contributions a few times over the course of this episode. One of the first topics that came up in our conversation was this idea of Polynesian wayfaring. So I asked her to give us a bit more detail on that. So when we when we think about Polynesian wayfaring, um, actually, one of the experts in the field, Jeffrey Irwin, was a professor of mine at the University of Auckland. As he explained it, um, Pacific voyagers would go out in search of new lands, and initially, anyway, they would follow what he called safe voyages. And what he meant by safe is they would go out facing due east, and he identified a sort of arc of 75 degrees, right, for these safe voyages, whereby they were able to go out from their home island and using wayfaring techniques or celestial navigation, they could always determine their latitude. And so what they would do is they would tack against the wind going back and forth. And then if they started running low on food stocks or, you know, had not made landfall within a reasonable amount of time, what what they were able to do is to shoot back to their known latitude of their home island and ride the winds straight back home. The prevailing winds were blowing in in, in a westerly direction. They were blowing from the east, yes. And that would bring them back to where they started if they got to the right latitude. Yes. So when we think about Rapa Nui, even though it is very remote, if you look at a map of the Pacific and look at those prevailing winds and currents, what you'll see is that across the tropical Pacific belt, you can go all the way to Rapa Nui and beyond, in fact, to the South American continent by following these arcs of safe voyages in Jeff Irwin's terms. And it's just an incredible, like with, with, with limited technology, how, how great the navigation can be. That I don't know if either of you saw the recent Disney film Moana. I haven't seen it yet, but, uh, I, but I, it, would, I would love to check it out. It's, yeah. it's pretty good. And it kind of goes, it, it's about a, a random 
fictional Polynesian island and they kind of go into some of this mm-hmm. stuff in in a in a obviously cartoonish way but like they're not that far off how how spectacular the uh, the risk is of just going out into the open ocean on a canoe it's the the equivalent of like going down like a mine or like a, a cave or something and you have you know so much oxygen but you have like a, a, a almost a direct line back to where you want to where you need to return to yeah 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 Rapa, Rapa Nui was the end of the yeah we should point out the actually the, the, the Polynesian Triangle if you draw a line on a map between New Zealand and Hawaii and then Easter Island that's um mm-hmm. that's the Polynesian Triangle and Easter Island is kind of if you're you know if you're coming from uh, Australia New Zealand that's like the far edge of it I suppose Polynesian Triangle is the same size as North America pretty much the entire yeah. continent of North America yeah. so that's a huge amount of um, amount of water that you're looking at you know these tiny little specks of land they've also been called the vikings of the pacific which i kind of like you know just little boat you know a band of enthusiastic young people with enough resources off you go find some find somewhere new you know it's interesting because you think about oceania and it is this huge region you know and and the feat of navigation is just phenomenal i mean these navigators literally found every speck of land. Luke, you read up on the, the, the legendary kind of origins, didn't you? The kind of oral history. The legend goes that this uh, Polynesian king, Hotomatua, had a dream about, uh, as you said earlier, Joe, the island at the center of the world or at the navel of the world. And uh, he ordered a bunch of, I think, around a dozen people to go and explore and find this place. It's probable that they came from... Uh, yeah, uh, from the Marquesas from Islands. The Marquesas, yeah, or possibly the Mangareven Islands near the Pit, around the Pitcairn Islands. There's some linguistic links to these different Polynesian groups, mm. but we don't, we just don't know. There is a lot of debate about when exactly Rapa Nui was settled, and a lot of work has been done to try to address this question. That initial footprint is going to be so difficult to identify archaeologically. So most of what we're actually able to see on the landscape is the sort of signatures of more permanent settlement. We usually won't see the initial you know, group of navigators of voyaging canoes that touch down um, on Rapa Nui. But what we do see instead is good evidence for permanent longer-term settlement, people making a, a bigger impact on the landscape. So the method that we use most often is radiocarbon dating. And when you radiocarbon date a sample, right, you're dating when that organism died. The methods that we have are not so precise that we can actually pinpoint a calendar year. But with that being said, um, recent archaeological evidence suggests that Rapa Nui was probably settled sometime between about AD 1000 and 1100. All right. So we know more or less when people came to the island, though it's unlikely we'll never know exactly what motivated them or how many were there on the first day. Yeah. But what we do know is that they almost certainly brought chickens, sweet potatoes, taro, and possibly, uh, various other crops that are staples. Possibly in, rats, uh, inadvertently, which will, become, Polynesian rats. which will become important later mm. on. Either as a food source or as a stowaway, yeah. I don't really know. But these these are all things that are on most islands. Yeah. And they discovered uh, a pretty forested uh, island mm. inhabited by palm trees, particularly. 
uh, as a lot of islands in yeah, that area. Yeah, and there was a giant, be. there was a giant palm tree that's now extinct um, called the Pashala Cocos. I think is the name of the the tree, which grows up to about fifty feet tall. Uh, is now extinct, but yeah, it's one of these like giant palm species that you find kind of around Polynesia. Mm. You'd imagine it was like super super lush when people originally found it, because I mean, as a volcanic island, the soil has got to be very it's rich. Fertile, yeah, um, yep. A lot of seabirds, but there's mm. um, there was apparently very few fish around the island, is what I read, mm. uh, because of the lack there's of no, coral there's reefs. There's no coral reef. Because it's too cold. Uh, the currents around there are just yeah. too cold to support. So this is kind of reef. pushing the edge of what Polynesian culture is designed yeah. for. Yes. And that's a factor that I think is perhaps underappreciated, is that you're getting into almost temperate climate, so the coconuts didn't grow that they brought with them. You know, mm. if Co- they did, Coco but no they grow. brought them everywhere else. Yep. yep. Um, no so lots of the staples didn't really work out. The stuff you would have expected to work didn't necessarily transplant to, to this particular climate. Yeah, so they were very, they were, other Polynesian cultures would have been very big on fishing, for example, and particularly sort of spear fishing, mm-hmm. whereas they couldn't do that yeah. uh, in, on Easter Island. So apparently what early settlers did was uh, hunt porpoises and dolphins. Uh, yeah. There's apparently a lot of, a lot of uh, dolphin bones have been found there. Uh, so they would go out in canoes yep. and then spear dolphins and then bring them back to the island. And uh, obviously, you know, that would be a, a key food, food source for them. As the the forests aren't going to last very long, so the idea of canoes becomes less and less tenable. There, there is a theory that that you can startle dolphins by just rubbing stones together underwater. It screws up their sonar echolocation abilities, mm. and some cultures use that to drive dolphins onto land and kill them that way. Ah, so, um, interesting. Anakena Beach, where legendarily uh, Hotamatua landed. Um, it's probably one of the only good beaches for landing a, a boat on. That's where they found huge piles of sort of waste material that includes huge amounts of of porpoises, right? Uh, and not so much fish and a lot of rat. Which again, more more rat has been eaten here than elsewhere because Delish. maybe yeah. it was only one of the only good food sources. <laughs> I think we're now sort of starting to touch on uh the yeah i guess what we would call the mystery of easter island which mm. we should say i guess at this point that there are quite a few different theories uh none of which we're going to sort of conclude yeah that's what i think yeah <laughs> we're not going to conclusively come down on on the side of any one uh theory in this podcast we're going to kind of give you a smattering of each one and just mm-hmm. say uh yeah that you can if you want to find out more there's plenty of research out there uh, to support different mm-hmm. theories but uh jared diamond a guy who writes extensively on kind of societies and particularly prehistorical societies and stuff has uh, so he, featured he's this well very, known for guns germs and steel yeah he's very well known for guns germs and steel and he featured this uh easter island featured very heavily in his book uh collapse about like uh, i think the subtitle was how societies uh, why fail, societies, or how societies choose, to, choose fail to fail or, or something. something that's the one that's the one which is a bit of a yeah. Yeah. So he had this theory of ecocide. Yeah. Which is when a society destroys its own environment. Inadvertently, I would say. But yeah, the, his his main theory is that, uh, in a nutshell, is that 
Easter Islanders, when they arrived on the island, the entire place was, as I said, very well forested and that the Easter Islanders sort of uh, cut down the palms and the trees with overabundance, uh, not mm. giving the forest enough time to regrow. And eventually sort of deforestation kicked in. You have like this now this very much treeless kind of a landscape, bare kind of landscape. Uh, mm -hmm. And after maybe 100 years, a couple hundred years, they were completely out of trees and therefore were no, no longer able to build canoes and were no longer able to build uh, fires where, you know, they would have been pretty reliant on fires in winter because um, it gets quite cold there. As you as you mentioned earlier, Joe, mm -hmm. it's not a, not a typical Polynesian uh, climate on Easter Island. As his theory goes, I can I can quote directly from him. This is uh, from a magazine article that he wrote before he expanded his theory into a full book. It says, uh, on Easter Island, as in modern America, society was held together by a complex political system to redistribute locally available resources and to integrate the economies of different areas. Eventually, Easter's growing population was cutting the forest more rapidly than the forest was regenerating. The people use the land for gardens and the wood for fuel, canoes and houses, and of course for lugging statues, which we haven't even got into yet. Mm, As yeah. the forest disappeared, the islanders ran out of timber and rope to transport and erect their statues. Life became more uncomfortable. Springs and streams dried up and wood was no longer available for fires. Uh, people also found it harder to fill their stomachs. As land birds, large sea snails and many seabirds disappeared because timber, was for, uh, timber for building seagoing canoes vanished. Fish catches declined and porpoises disappeared from the table. Crop yields also declined since deforestation allowed the soil to be eroded by rain and wind, dried by the sun and its nutrients to be leached from it. Intensified chicken production and cannibalism, uh, which we is a controversial statement by him, uh, replaced only part of those lost foods and preserved statuettes with sunken cheeks and visible ribs suggest that people were starving. So... We should probably talk now. Uh, now uh, that we've a lot, a lot of that has anyway. A lot of that, a lot of that, a lot of his conclusions of have been questioned. Yeah. And maybe we'll come back to that after we discuss the statues. We can come back to that, but the moai is something uh, is is probably the mo the best known kind of imagery from Easter Island that people will probably mm -hmm. think giant of when heads. they when they giant stone heads. They are giant heads. Just in general terms, the moai, you know, they've they've captured the public's imagination. And for good reason. I mean, they are megalithic. They are massive. They are very finely carved. About 99% of them were carved at a centralized quarry at Ronororaku, and they're made out of volcanic tuff. So volcanic tuff is, is a stone that is relatively soft when you compare it to most of the basalt that makes up the island of Rapa Nui. So in that sense, they were somewhat easy to carve for Polynesian carvers. And to this day, there are hundreds of discarded statues littered around that quarry, kind of half-finished ones, or ones that broke in, in production, or ones that weren't finished, ones that weren't taken from the quarry when they were finished. Some that look just tools scattered around the place. Like, it, it kind of looks like a factory that was just abandoned. That's where the uh, the, the mega head is, is, isn't it? The El Gigante, the 72-foot head that was, like, too big even for them to do anything 72 with. feet is definitely the biggest one that was made. I, I heard it was left in the quarry. It was uh, Okay, perfect. Not, I, mean, I, I would well believe yeah. it. It's a little bit. Uh, it's a little bit overkill. Yeah. They're they're all a little bit overkill if you, if if I'm honest. <laughs> but uh, we'll get into that as well. Like some of them would only be six or eight feet high, and some were going up to seventy two feet. And like some of them were portable, and some were one hundred and sixty five you know, tons. Apparently, is the weight of El Gigante. 
Wow. Yeah. I think everyone listening has seen one, but they have a very distinctive appearance, kind of quite long heads. When we look at the evolution of style, and this is something that Dr. Brett Shepherdson has looked extensively at, they go from much more naturalistic renderings to more abstracted renderings. And that being the very tall moai with the long torso, the extended earlobes, and the sort of long face. So the, the the variation approaching this kind of pattern of of uh, uniformity has led Dr. Joanne van Tilburg to think that colonization happened at an early date and this industry took a long time to become uniform. They're sort of two-third heads. They look almost almost like uh, kind of bubble heads, you know, kind of like disproportionately <laughs> large heads, I guess. <laughs> Huge, sacred bubble heads. Yeah, exactly. Collect them all, kids. They don't do much bubbling at all. Now, in terms of in terms of what they signify, um, their cultural significance, most people will tell you, and and most people on the island will tell you that they represent important ancestors or deified ancestors. Now, there's some debate as to whether they were commissioned by individuals, but many people will will tell you that they are um, the aringa ora or the living faces of the ancestors. And the Moai were carved at a centralized quarry, most of them, and then they were transported along a series of road networks out to the ceremonial platforms, or Ahu. The principal Ahu, the largest Ahu, are located in discrete territories around the island, and people, communities living in those territories were related by kin, and the elite villages were constructed right in front of those ceremonial platforms. And so what you have is this ceremonial center to each territory located around the island. And the statues, contrary to popular belief, they actually face inwardly for the most part, and they watch over their communities. They all look in at their tribal lands. The island was split into 12 tribal groups, kind of... None of them look out to the ocean. Because there wasn't anyone coming. Yeah. You don't need protection when nobody has ever visited. It's pretty desolate out there, as we've already said. So <laughs> Even their eventual colonization so, by European-led white people was, was almost reluctant. It was more a sort of mm-hmm. shrug. All right. <laughs> we, have, we, need, we haven't colonized everywhere yeah, yet. Exactly. So I suppose yeah. we have. Anyway. In, in Polynesian culture, there's this idea that you have mana, a power or a force or a good luck or something to that effect. It's kind of hard to translate. And people of high status have a lot of mana. And when they die, that can be transferred to to some kind of object to kind of symbolize their eternal form, I suppose. And the, these, uh, I think these are who sometimes involve burial sites as well. That's that's what I was going to, I was going to ask that I, I had heard that there was burial sites and somebody drew the kind of the, mm. uh, the line between you know, pyramids and uh, these things that, you know, they're basically, it's, th- there was a top knob. He was a great guy. Let's put up some some stuff so that yep. uh, everyone kind of remembers how great a guy he was. But that, it's, a, um, it's a, a mixture between between like an idol and a gravestone, I suppose. Might be a. Uh, there's a few other little things I'll just zip through that the, it was only relatively recently discovered that they had ceremonial eyes made of coral. Huh. So the the image we're used to is the sunken eyelid eye, eye socket, but it looks like they had they found them buried near the Ahu. Um. And it's been put together that these would have been put in at ceremonially important times. All right. Perhaps. And then later on, a lot of them started getting these large, red, many-ton pokau, almost like a crown, but they were meant to represent the top-knot hairstyle the chiefs would have worn. So uh, they're quite 
dramatic and they were made in a different quarry um, out of Scaria rock. So they're made in Puno Pau. And there's this idea that like we almost have division of labour where like there's one quarry that does red red Pukau and there's one quarry that does that does the, the, the tough for the statues and there's maybe another part of the island that's very good at agriculture. And that there's kind of a an economy based on different tribes contributing different resources to society. It's pretty theoretical, but like there seems to have been cooperation between tribes because these Moai were in every tribe's land or every clan's land, but all yeah, from the, the same. The, even the Ahu, like you mentioned, Joe, the, the platforms are like built without any kind of mortar mm-hmm. or anything, which in itself, like mm-hmm. these are these are platforms that are sort of, you know, uh, four to five feet high, I would say, in, in, in some cases. And they're just still standing today. Uh, I, I should point out that the people have found it difficult to believe that indigenous people with no tools did this. And you do get crazy uh, theories like a Swiss hotel manager and fraudster called Eric van Deniken. He had a whole book called uh, Chariots of the Gods uh, about how aliens uh, built the statues. Yep. Which is, uh, I, I can think we can we can pretty, pretty surely say that's not the case. Watch your um, tongue. Hey, we said but, we weren't going to dis- discount so yeah, any like, theories, Joe. So yeah. we're not discounting any theories. <laughs> but there's approximately a thousand of these around the island. And maybe we'll get to it after the Europeans arrive. But they aren't upright anymore in most cases. But I think yeah. we should park that for a second. The, but the, if you if you haven't seen them, uh, you can check out the show notes in which we, we will have a few images either linked or embedded in there. Uh, so you can see them. But... Yeah, they're mm-hmm. they're definitely kind of an iconic image of uh, of it, the it's, island. It's it's a very strange thing that like a culture was just left on its own for so long, and that this ended up being their you know their big their raison d'être their 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 economy. The man is coming down. We need big giant stone heads, and we've got different kinds of quarries that are all supplying different kinds of stone. This whole ecosystem out of a thing that was just like. Something somebody kind of thought up as an explanation for why they were there. Like I, I imagine, like some Polynesian tourist coming, like five hundred years after we're le- left out on their own, almost like a like a a summer isle wicker man kind of thing. Like, oh, this is what you guys do. I mean, no, it's great. I love your stone heads, obviously, and just finding it really creepy and unsettling, and just like I'm just gonna head home to where this. But but you look you look at the resources you know medieval Europeans put into cathedrals. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's often the only thing left of that particular time period. And in, 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 you know, it's not that out of the ordinary. Um, I, I guess it just it's, sh- it's just it's such a unique symbolic it, thing because nowhere else has this exact symbol that that's I guess what I mean that like if if you section mm. off any amount of humanity to kind of percolate on its own there's literally no way to anticipate what their what yeah. what their end up what like their their religion could have been anything like it like it could have been I mean this is not to 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 put it down or to make it to trivialize it but like it, it could have been thousands of huge giant like crabs or something like that it could have been like you know they, they the crab is the main form of sustenance and the other or it could have like things could have gone almost any way and it's just amazing that the result of this particular experiment in humanity we've got a thousand stone heads that's uh that's what's we why we put kind of lost a run of ourselves we put there. in 50 people um, leave it for a thousand years we get no trees and a thousand heads okay is that a result i guess so okay move on 
so just before we get on to Europeans turning up, I would like to say that the first Europeans did see people lighting fires in front of the, the Moai and also kneeling before the Moai. So there's clearly some religious significance, even if we don't know exactly what. And I'd just like to come back to Jared Diamond's kind of ecocide theory because I think it's important that I we give the the other the more modern sure we kind can of counter theory introduce bottom so theory yeah he's, his his notion is that in order to, like the the society became obsessed with building massive stone heads and destroyed all of the forests in the process of doing this and then that led to civil war and to famine and so on and he's convinced that these were transported on wooden sleds along roads of wooden rollers and the amount of wood and rope involved would have been incredible and the amount of people involved to bring these multi-ton heads around would have required huge amounts of farming to produce the food. That's his kind of theory and it goes back to the first European settler seeing the heads and assuming the population must have been bigger in the past to sustain a complex culture. Did did he totally pull the number 30,000 people out of his arse? He just looks around, I reckon 30,000 people and then that was it from then on everyone was like, I guess there was 30,000 people at the start. That Dutch guy because they're so. thinking in terms of they're thinking in terms of pyramids and that sort right. of thing. But more recent research or more recent appraisal of the research and the evidence that actually exists, particularly by Terry Hunt and Carl Lippo, sort of counter this idea of intentional destruction of the environment. So they point out that of all Polynesian islands, Easter Island is the most susceptible for a whole host of geological and climatic reasons uh, to deforestation, and other Polynesian islands with similar climates or similar levels of volcanicity or similar age were also the ones that got most deforested. So that's but, one thing. I mean, I mean, we, 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 you, you and I, Joe, had a had a, a debate about not not just about this, but like in in general about this kind of stuff. I I I kind of think that there is a a reaction against the Jared Diamond kind of like it, it was their fault. They kind of deserved it. Kind of thinking, which I agree is you know probably too negative and, and you know, placing blame with with uh, the mm-hmm. natives but i i would have enough faith in the kind of uh, in the complexity of their society they are just people and people do all kinds of crazy dumb stuff and i i, I wouldn't yeah yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a lot no, of effort I, being placed I, into trying to like well you know it wasn't their fault uh, some there was a, a, a lack of gannets that year. Well, yeah, but also they might have just yeah, burned no, no, all no, the trees and cut the, them down for giant heads. That's also so. Some so dumb the, stuff the, the point, <laughs> the point the counter theory is making isn't that they weren't the people didn't do bad things because yeah. uh, obviously this was the biggest seabird colony in the Pacific before humans arrived, right. and now it isn't mm-hmm. anymore. Like there's no disputing that they ate them all. There's no doubt that the Rapa Nui people deforested the island. But it's the causal link between deforestation and population collapse that is very problematic and is not actually supported by empirical evidence. So one of the research programs that I've been involved in for a number of years, led by Thane Latifoged at the University of Auckland, Chris Stevenson, who's at Virginia Commonwealth University, Peter Vitusek at Stanford, and their colleagues, you know, when we started this project, years ago now, um, that was the prevailing theory, that people deforested their island and that they created this process of erosion and sort of environmental collapse. 
And what we actually found by sampling the gardens and looking at the soils themselves is that by deforesting and intensifying their agriculture through the construction of rock gardens, and sometimes including lithic mulching, they were actually able to make the environment more productive, not less productive. And so when we think about these rock gardens, they have a variety of um, benefits. Firstly, by placing rocks on the surface of the island, you protect them from the high winds. It's very windy on Rapa Nui. That's a, a common trait in that environment. And so by placing the stones next to the plants themselves, they were protected by the high winds. They also helped with temperature variation. They actually reduced evaporation. All of Rapa Nui's agricultural systems are rain-fed. They're dependent on rainfall. So by reducing the evaporation of the water, your plants have more water available to them. But the interesting thing that Thane and Chris and their team's research showed is that by cutting down the trees, by deforesting the island, and then intensifying the agricultural system by building these rock gardens, the Rapa Nui people were actually able to increase the nutrient levels in the soils themselves. And so they were able to make this somewhat marginal environment a little bit more productive. The counter theory behind Lippo isn't that they didn't deforest or they weren't involved in deforesting. It's more that that didn't destroy a society of 30,000 people. Yeah, no, I mean, 30,000 is rubbish. So this idea that that there was a huge society that completely ate itself, um, literally, the cannibalism theory, doesn't really have any evidence except that it sounds good and it's a good metaphor for our destroying our own environment in the modern Mm. day. And that's why it's popular. It's like hubris, you know, it's sort of a, how how did they not know? The arrogance Um, of man. Yeah, and I mean, one of the elements that you talked about the that the Diamond was pushing was that like they needed all those trees to erect the stone heads. But a, a part of the legend of, of the Moai is that they walked where they yes. were going and they've found that it's, it's basically, if you just like imagine moving a wardrobe, just rocking it back and forth from side to yep. side, you can walk it up uh, up mm. a hill. Or and there you, were roads you know, all over the islands bringing from the quarry to other places. And I think it's Hunt and Lippo did an experiment with this with people. There's a video out there of them rocking a, 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 a kind of a reconstructed um, moai, like, as you say, like walking a wardrobe yeah. uh, side to side, wobbling along, and it works. And that doesn't require this massive investment of sleds and wooden rollers. It just, you need some rope. So you need some tree yeah. products, but not not huge amounts. So they are a fan of the later colonization theory that around 1200 is when people got there and 1200 is when deforestation begins in the, in the archaeological record. So they, they were burning so they through the trees humans, the whole time but like it, not but, that long actually. But it wasn't that they arrived 800 years mm. earlier did nothing to the forest and then just destroyed them all overnight. Yeah. And also the role of the Polynesian rat in eating the seeds of trees is important that the rats would have yeah, stopped the, 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 the trees reproducing. The rat theory so is a very interesting one which is that we we mentioned earlier where uh, the rats were like stowaways, uh, either either a food source or a stowaway. Either way, uh, ended up on Easter Island and had uh, no competition and no natural predators and just bred at this you know massive rate uh, on this sort of uninhabited island and just decimated the ve- vegetation across the island. They just ate and definitely played a role as along with the humans. Yeah, yeah exactly. So 
in that theory, humans eventually then turned to eating the rats because there was very little vegetation left uh, mm. because they couldn't control mm. the rat population, which is supported by the fact that there were, you know, huge amounts of uh, rat bones that were found in, you know, all over the island. But that may just be one factor in, mm-hmm. you know, of many. Uh, rat bones sounds like theory, a prison nickname. So. It's it's the interpretation is what's up for question, not the facts. All right, I think we should take a break here, uh, and then we'll get to we'll get to European contacts where things are only going to get better, as we've as we as we know from previous podcasts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, things are only going to going up from here. Okay, so in 1722, we have the arrival of the first European, uh, Jakob Rogevain, who is a Dutch explorer working for the Dutch West India Company. Yeah, uh, he lands on the uh, yeah, he lands on uh, the island on Easter Day uh, in 1722, uh, Easter Sunday, and subsequently names the the island after you know the day that he landed there, so Easter Island. It's a good name, uh, to be fair. He has, I mean, it's an all right. It's name. not bad. It's not bad. I mean, it's better it's, than you know, than just some random king. You know, it's got a bit of class. Well, it's yeah. a, it's a bit more neutral, I guess. I mean, mm-hmm. there's also there's a Christmas island elsewhere yeah. as well, and, and Natal, I think, was also there is Christmas. Uh, hmm. That was landed anyway. But he had three ships. His his kind of exploring party estimated there were around two to three thousand inhabitants on the island at the time. So not far off what there is today. Yeah, not far off. I mean, I think what today is around 6,000, maybe five to 6,000. So, mm. um, yeah, relatively kind of sparsely populated. So they got into a skirmish with some of the natives uh, and they killed a few natives. Uh, Good start. First day. Technology, yeah. uh, as Europeans do. And they recorded in their logs that they were... I read were... one account of that where it was described as the natives Go got overexcited by being friendly to them. And there was a, right. a kerfuffle where 12 got shot. You go, well, oh were they like hugging them and giving them lays and you shoot them? You're yeah, like, I, don't just... I don't like flowers. <laughs> Selling them ceremonial uh, <laughs> tiny heads. <laughs> so they recorded in their, in their reports from the island that they were impressed by these statues, the Moai. And they said, at first, these stone figures caused us to be filled with wonder because we could not understand how it was possible that people who were destitute of timber and also of stout cordage had been able to erect them. Fair. Uh, so they did report that they were they were upright uh, Moai at the time. Again, it's 1722. Uh, I got a, a quick quote here from Jared Diamond again, who we've said his you know his uh, theories on the island are disputed, but he says here that uh, the island Rogovain saw was a grassland without a single tree or bush over ten feet high. And you remember earlier we talked about uh, the giant palm species that were supposed to be resident on the island. Not anymore. Disappeared by this point. Not mm. anymore. Modern botanists have identified only 47 species of higher plant, uh, higher plants native to Easter Island, most of them wow. grasses, sedges, and ferns. Uh, the list includes just two species of small trees and two of woody shrubs. With such flora, the islanders Rogavane encountered had no source of real firewood to warm themselves during Easter's cool, wet, windy winters. Their native animals included nothing larger than insects, not even a single species of native bat, land bird, 
land snail or lizard. For domestic animals, they had only chickens. Wow. Yeah, this is a point where uh, we've speculated already that kind of um, population collapse was well underway by this point, but it's only going to get worse. Mm. There's an interesting period now uh, between 1722 and 1770. So after Rogovain leaves, uh, the next European encounter is in 1770. And this is from three uh, Spanish ships. The Spanish sailors who landed on the island, uh, they named it Isla de San Carlos after uh, King Charles III of Spain. Mm. Yeah, and dude. they erected three <laughs> wooden crosses on top of three hills, the three hills on the island, the three peaks. I mean, what kind of uh, civilization would go around putting two pieces of sticks together? It's ridiculous. I know. All the resources they put into it. What a waste <laughs> of time. So they put uh, they put their three wooden crosses up on the three hills uh, because Catholicism. And then in 1774, we have uh, the visit of Captain Cook. And he himself at this point in the voyage was too sick to explore the island very much himself. But his party reported that uh, some of the statues had fallen down. There was no signs of the crosses that had been uh, erected Weird. four w- years earlier. Why would you not yeah. keep them? Mm. I don't know. I, maybe they were that desperate for wood. Who knows? <laughs> oh, God. Um, oh. <laughs> uh, they described the place as a poor land. Mm-hmm. So reports show increasing levels of statues uh, being pushed down or falling down as time went on. Uh, botanists described it as a very kind of uh, infertile place with not not very much vegetation. There are not many boats to be found, uh, and most of them were in disrepair at this point. Uh, most of the cultivated land had been neglected. Uh, there were no trees, again, over 10 feet, and there were fewer than 30 women remaining, according to Captain Cook's party. <laughs> they uh, they noticed that for 1, sure. 1,000 people. Yeah. Where the honey's at? Estimated 1,000 people living on the island uh, with no more than 30 women uh, remaining, so... And not a Everything looker had gone among very... them. <laughs> Though there is some talk that they, they hid the women in caves when Europeans came to shore. Dead right. Wouldn't, wouldn't Possibly. be a crazy thing to do. Wouldn't uh, be given... a bad idea, no. So yeah, there's kind of... this. It's a bit of a mystery what happened between the Dutch visit and the later visits because basically everyone died in the interim. Yeah, so there's there's a, a very sharp decline in population but on that between that time. Uh, so so... The, the, when the Dutch visit, there was a, maybe 3,000 people yeah. And then you're, you're down to 1,000 people within 50 years, so not even a, a generation later. So, so some uh, this is definitely a point of disease from like maybe the Dutch left yeah. behind some smallpox for the, you know, from their three days of visiting. Some smallpox yeah. for your troubles there, lads. Because, mm-hmm. uh, of Hold course, you, the indigenous people had no immunity. Yeah. But there's also these theories of civil war that um, there was massive civil war between the various tribes. Many archaeologists have have proposed that there was this great period of anarchy or civil unrest on Rapa Nui. And some of the earlier theories cited obsidian artifacts, which are called mata, as quote-unquote spear points. Now, if you look at the shape of these artifacts, they're not very pointed. Um, And while they would be useful um, because they are sharp, right? Obsidian is a type of volcanic glass, so they do have very sharp edges, and these edges were often retouched again and again to make them sharper. Um, You know, they they could be useful as a weapon in one regard, but, um, you know, so too, if you you think about a modern-day example, a beer bottle could be a really good weapon, too. Right. Even though it wasn't initially manufactured 
to be one. But it would be unreasonable to assume because we have beer bottles that we were our society is in a state of anarchy. Yes, you got it. Okay. So with the with the with the mata, they are the the most ubiquitous artifact on the island. Mm-hmm. Um, you literally, when you walk across the landscape, you will see them on the surface. Oh, really? And, they're they're, uh, they're just lying around. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, they're very useful as a cutting tool for anything and everything. If we look to the early European accounts, you know, there's no indication. If you look at Rogovine and his crew's notes, there's no indication of warfare. Um, You know, they talk about the people being friendly and bowing down in front of their statues in some sort of ritual and having plenty of foodstuffs to trade and cutting those bananas and other foodstuffs with small, shiny black stones. And so, you know, based on just that one little strand of evidence, what that suggests is that the mata were cutting implements or agricultural tools. And so while we know that there were certainly, um, there was competition in Rapa Nui society, there certainly were, you know, conflicts um, especially following European contact that were recorded during the historic era, you know, projecting those onto the pre-European contact past, somewhat problematic when you take a very critical look at the evidence on, on which they're based. So there you go. I think the fact that the, the, a lot of the heads were then on their sides when people came back, you know, 50 years yeah. later, does, does suggest, I mean, potentially... I mean, there's a lot of theories. One was the the earthquake theory. There was an earthquake mm-hmm. and it just knocked a bunch, not knocked over a bunch of the heads. But by the end of that period, you have this new, or at least seemingly new, uh, religion of of the Birdman. Yes, uh, which suggests maybe that there was some kind of cultural upheaval, even if it wasn't violent. That they, yeah, yeah. That so they no, maybe... it, it seems it seems like the the heads fell over over a period of of. Um... A long time. So they were mostly upright until the early 1800s. But the, the last one was probably Paro, the massive statue on the north coast, which was laid down in an act of violence in, in the 1830s. But uh, but as you say, it, Joe, it they, were, like they were laid down more so than pushed down. Like Some were uh, pushed, they, they, some, some the were laid. Them, yeah. yeah, most yeah, seem to have been laid down I, gently I, and buried. Right. Yeah, so it wasn't as if kind of people were just pushing them down in, in anger. They were kind of no. I guess there was there's some suggestion that they were sort of laying them down as if like uh, we'll get into it just now. But this this Birdman cult sort yeah, of mm-hmm. like supplanted the the religion of the Moai. So they and, and meeting the Europeans would be a good reason to change your your cosmology. So like it's not crazy mm. that you would have this. You know, we're no longer the only people in the universe. Yeah, we need a new a new thing. And there's thought that the Birdman cult may be. Uh, almost a, an economic shift that, you know, under the Moai system, everyone was sharing across the island. The Birdman cult was probably more militaristic, that the chiefs were losing influence. It, and th- this this heroic figure of the Birdman could become the predominant for a year. It, it did seem the like to be an economic incentive kind of mm. thing, because the, the whole idea was based around this yearly competition where somebody had to get the first uh, the first egg, uh, was it were they turns was the sooty turn the yeah. sooty turn yeah the, the the first person to get one of these uh, eggs from this really you know hard to reach place uh, some there's I, an island yeah, across an island. a shark infested bay um and then that person yeah. is basically this is i mean top dog we we 
no this is like a really i i mean i think i don't think there's any real other word to 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 use in this case this is a really cool like religious yeah. kind of ceremony it's almost this like is, a like proper, who's the biggest badass kind of yeah. thing yeah but the, the weird so the cult was yeah. centered in this arango crater, crater we talked about earlier the really dramatic crater full of water oh, and a cliff right. face. And then out beyond the cliff is this this isolated island where the, the birds have retreated to after humans ate them all on the mainland. Mm-hmm. A prophet would get a, a, a vision that would pick the contestants who would be kind of big men from the various tribes. Yeah. And they would then nominate someone to swim for them. So they didn't do the swimming. All right. So you nominated some young, some young warrior to go out and do your swimming for you. He'd get out to the island. The first one to get a an egg would shout back to the mainland. Oh, but wait, Joe. Yeah? You you forgot about the what I would argue is probably if you look at pictures of this of this cliff, mm-hmm. it's probably the most treacherous part of this journey is climbing down the cliff. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, right, so it's, right. it's, it's almost vertical, but it's like if you imagine the kind of outer rim of a of a volcanic crater, mm-hmm. it's like extremely sheer. But it it is kind of you could sort of see people shimmying down it, I suppose, but it will be all kind of loose rock and stone. And apparently a lot of the competitors in this ceremony were killed by slipping and falling down the yeah. rock face, so they didn't even get into the water. I mean, they, uh, got, they didn't even make it as far they as They got into swim. the water, but just, not in the right they, way. They didn't even make it as far not as Not in the right way. So. Yes, yes. Uh, so you, you shimmy down the cliff and then... You swim. And then when you get the egg, you shout back to your your patron who's standing up on top of the cliff... You say, shave your head, you have got the egg. <laughs> and all the other guys would give up and swim back. The guy with the egg would, would take a little rest. Um, his patron would shave his head and put on various paints and stuff. I think I think he might have painted his head red. I'm not sure about that. That would make sense with the red stone on the they, uh, Moai. Yeah, exactly. The red hats or the red top knots. So the, there was, red was valuable in this culture. And in fact, when the Europeans arrived, the thing that most fascinated the natives was their red cloth, more than their weapons and their smallpox. Um, and then you'd swim back, you'd give your, your patron the, the egg, um, and that would give your clan special benefits for the year that you could control. Yeah, so your, your clan would basically make, yeah, Guys, make, become it's the, Hunger the, Games. Hunger Games. the biggest It's the Hunger clan. Games. It's Good the, Lord. It's the bloody Hunger it's, Games. It's kind of like the Hunger Games, yeah. Uh, and I quite like this the, the the chief who so. who was the patron he would he would become taboo for the for a five month period and he'd go into a house by himself let his hair and nails grow and he was kind of oh, taboo yeah. taboo is a Polynesian word it means like sacred or set aside it's, but it was to resemble yeah. a bird like they have bird claws and yeah, he would become, become like a yeah bird to become man. and this like symbol of man, the bird yeah. gets um this starts appearing on lots of petroglyphs and carvings everywhere. We don't know why the population declined so much, and we don't know why the Moai started getting knocked over. I, I personally think, like the I've read, I read this paper about the earthquake theory, and I think it's got a bit of like some of the, the disturbances in the Ahu platforms, are very consistent with not just some lads knocking over the front, so so one statue falls over, but literally the whole Ahu moving in one direction dramatically at one time and everything falling over. So at least in some cases, earthquakes had a role to play. And maybe that's the reason for stopping. If you have increased seismic activity and your Moai keep falling over, clearly the gods aren't interested in the Moai anymore. And then perhaps the remaining ones get knocked over in civil war. Yeah, and that may account for kind of the rise of this Birdman yeah, cult as we well. we don't know. So, uh, um, I, just, I just think that the, the sentence, know. rise of the Birdman cult... <laughs> 
just denotes <laughs> such a I mean there's no way to get around it. they went a bit mad like th- stuff stuff went crazy for a little while and the idea that that wouldn't lead to eh, maybe a little bit more violence a little bit more knocking over the heads I remember like we were chatting about it Joe and you were, you were saying like yep. no they couldn't have done it because the noses are very brittle and slender but like <laughs> no th- then a- another argument is that it was earthquakes but no yeah, I, I know <laughs> the, I know the, the, the different theories are, are all just kind of like no, I'm sure they were really like peaceful and chilled out. Island life, you know, island, everything's on island time. Or maybe they just went spare. They yeah. just went Lulu. Uh, anyway, <laughs> because everybody was help. dying. Of yeah, smallpox. that's that's fair enough. That's yeah, fair enough. So between uh, 1786 and 1820 or so, we have uh, a few kind of scattered landings from uh, French and Russian explorers. Uh, a few kind of different European landings, mainly just kind of exploring the island and just mm. checking out what was going on. I couldn't really find too much information about any of those, but essentially around kind of uh, the kind of turn of the 20th century or uh, 19th century, mm-hmm. they become, the islanders become kind of hostile towards visitors and start to actively attack ships that attempt to, uh, attempt to land on the, on the island, probably because they're, you know, they're aware now of, the correlation between smallpox and and white people yep. who knows but uh yeah they're they're not too hot on europeans anymore by this point it so, was kind of an interesting curiosity initially but now their entire culture's collapsed so um yeah yeah what happened next mark i think it's your turn oh yeah so we've made this this almost complaint against human history several times that like we we picked this place that we thought would be like easy going and then we find like everywhere we look just mad mad stuff so nuts and so brutal it's so short it's, it's so short it just happens and misery like that. misery abounds okay so so I'm going to start with not necessarily the, the really bad stuff. I'm just going to explain that from about uh, 1863 to 1864 or 5, the Catholic Church starts to get interested in Easter Island. Um, the the first guy to spend a bit of time there is a guy by the name of... Uh, Yush- what? People are worshipping giant heads? We have to get out there. <laughs> There's something about this. They, they've got the, the worshipping part right. We just need to switch out those heads for some, you know, dead carpenter. Yeah. Uh, so the guy's name was uh, Eugene uh, Aero, and uh, he spent uh, a couple of months there, basically on his own. Uh, initially, the the locals were, you know, they were curious about him. They found him kind of interesting. Uh, he he does seem to be quite like a, a chilled out, passive guy. Um, and then after a while, did he just... speak any Polynesian languages? He or... didn't. No, oh, and that no. was that was a big barrier. He wasn't really able to make <laughs> yeah, any. Funny that. Yeah, <laughs> he wasn't really. Jesus, make... good. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um. And they kind of saw him as a curiosity at the start. Uh, they were, as you said, Joe, like a little bit suspicious about him. But when they realized he was just some 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 guy uh, and was just hanging around, just kind of like nodding at them and smiling like a like an Anglican uh, like an Anglican like <laughs> vicar, um, they they just kind of let him go off and do his own thing. Uh, but then subsequently, he reported back to the mothership, uh, saying like, "Yes." It's all right, you know, it's not, not too bad. Um, and they sent over uh, Father Roussel, who did uh-huh. speak some Polynesian uh, languages, a very different kind of character, a lot more kind of fire and brimstone. Uh, there's a suggestion that he maybe uh, physically accosted some of the locals at various times when they, you know, weren't doing what he wanted them to. Uh, Eugene Yero seemed to be a bit passive and they would kind of push him around a little bit. Uh, Father Roussel, not so much. 
Interestingly, though, the missionaries weren't allowed to touch the Moai, even though they were mostly on their faces. Hmm. I read somewhere that, like, they were kind of kept away from walking over Moai or walking near them. So there was kind of a still a respect for these toppled monuments. Even oh, if, yeah. You know. I, I, I think they, they kind of they kept it like as a as a dual kind of thing. This is just course, some yeah. new element, but they're just incorporating into what they already have uh, going on. Uh, and they still had their, their, their this cult of the Birdman was still kind of coexisting a little bit. And the 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 rites and, and traditions that went along with it. But this um, is kind of when it gets... It yeah, gets so it starts getting fa- phased out. Um, there was a mention actually of a, a, do- a donation of some cattle came by boat to Father Roussel. And the, the locals were like, they lost their nut when they saw this. Because like, <laughs> this guy like... This guy basically made new animals come from the sea. We've been here a thousand years eating these gross eggs. And this guy made cows come out of the sea. That's a pretty good deal. And they were, that that, that really kind of turned them, uh, turned them on for the old Christianity and to Father Roussel generally. Um, Yeah, so Roussel is a pretty impressive guy. He starts wedging his way into the normal aspects of day-to-day life. Now, um, He, he did a bad thing, didn't he? Well, th- it was you that told me this, Joe, but it does make a lot of sense that he, it was through them that they kind of introduced TB onto the island. So he, he went away for a while, back to Tahiti, I think. Right. And came back with a helper. And during the time he was in Tahiti, he, he, he acquired tuberculosis. Great. And he brought it back and... TB, yeah. I mean, I mean, it started then, but it actually only became... <laughs> It, it wasn't the main thing straight away. There's actually two other massive catastrophes before we hit the TB catastrophe, which oh, just brilliant. kind of sped things along. So here's a word I, I had to learn for this this podcast. Blackbirding. Either of you guys come across it? I chose no. not to read any further because I knew you'd tell us. Okay, well. But I came, I came across the word. Bl- blackbirding is basically like uh, slave raiding. Uh, coercion through trickery and kidnapping workers, basically. Oh, great. And, and the guy who is, I mean, he's somewhat unwittingly so, but is the real reason for all of this evil that happened. All this terrible things. And he has the name, the name of a terrible person, a name, a portent of terrible things to come. His name is Joseph Charles Byrne from Dublin really? from Kimmich yes oh, oh <laughs> this God. guy was from Kimmich wow who not me the not me not, not, uh, not, a, not a relative of yeah, maybe so you say okay, Joe so Joseph Byrne was uh, born in <laughs> Dublin um born in Dublin in 1800 son of a small time cattle dealer uh, and as I say, from Kimmage in Dublin, from Mount Argus. It's actually a, a, he was born in Mount Argus House, I think. And Mount Argus is actually a park in Kimmage right now. Hmm. So to quote a tall, sturdily built man with a fresh complexion and impressive manner, well dressed and exuding prosperity. Ooh, it could so, be me. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. So uh, I'm making him sound pretty attractive. It'll it'll change. Oh. Um, so he became kind of well known. Uh, he, he wandered the empire a little bit. Uh, he was in Australia. He may have been in the US. That might have been BS. But he published this book about his, you know, travels through the empire. Um, and he seemed to be a bit of a, a wheeler dealer. He turned up in Liverpool dealing in stocks and shares when that was a boom industry. And then the there was a crash and he 
turned uh, he went into the emigration uh, industry the, the, the sorry the emigration industry well yeah advertising like i mean you're you're poor here wouldn't you like to be rich somewhere else kind of vibe okay. so he, he ended up uh, facilitating 20 ships worth of people to settle in natal in brazil actually yeah i mentioned natal earlier uh, named after the it being uh, jesus's birthday when they landed so natal uh, like nativity mm-hmm. so that kind of worked out sort of um and that was his connection with South America. But his next and last attempt at relocating large numbers of people was with Peru and the oh. South Sea Islands. So he came along and kind of convinced them that like, uh, Peru, you need lots of workers. I will sort this out for you. I'm really good at this. I'm Joe Byrne. Um, so while he started to try to fulfill this order for lots of people, um, he died. And therefore, oh. the, the rights lapsed uh, mm. and it meant that basically anybody who wants to try to get some people to Peru uh, they all started to have designs like but he was the one who kind of set up the model and then it, all it of made these... him sound oh it's like Joe Byrne wasn't a slave trader well. his death allowed the slave trade to prosper I mean that's yes I can I can just on and the his record work. Joe Byrne not a slave trader okay. <laughs> not a slave trader <laughs> just putting that out there <laughs> but did facilitate quite a lot of slave trading by his, you know, by his death, by his death and poor forethought, because he was the one who started off. He, he gave them the idea. He gave okay. them the notion of, okay. wouldn't it be nice to have some foreigners to do all our work for us? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so no foreigners were ever brought in, and everything was fine. Perfect. Oh boy. Um, so basically, the these blackbirders um, who participated in blackbirding, they they scooped up people from the, the Polynesian islands not just uh, Easter Island but definitely including Easter Island and I did read that possibly Easter Island was used as like a staging area so they would capture people from other islands stash them in Easter Island oh man and then use that as a funnel to bring people to to Peru so the kind of work they were doing I mean some of the work was uh, you know agricultural some of the the worst stuff that it was um this uh place the chincha islands uh these plantations off of peru uh, listeners to our nauru podcast will remember uh the the fertility the land fertility that comes from guano deposits and mm. chincha the chincha islands had guano deposits as well and oh. it was basically just like making people slave away chipping off bird dung from an island and this is where some of the um some of the the easter islanders were sent so it was approximately 1500 people from well, probably like it was about 50 percent of the population like half yeah they they took half the population and stashed <sighs> them on bird turd island off the coast of peru um and you know did i th- did i read somewhere like the 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 paramount chief was one of them yes yes they they stole uh they they just kind of stole people randomly it wasn't like a give us your weakest it was just like well they they took they took the the burliest guys for sure because they wanted them to work it was a kai mako iiti who was the arikimau uh, of that generation he was he was you know the head honcho he died there um and within six months the fatality rate was as high as 63 percent in some of the places that they were sent (sighs) So now you've got half the population, you know, uh, pretty much this was the death knell of the Rongo Rongo uh, local language and the script. So now no one's really left to interpret the history of 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 uh, of, of the people because they were all sent to Peru. Uh, and say 
as many as 63% are dying in slave labor in, you know, atrocious conditions. This is Peru in the 1860s. It's, it is no cakewalk. So as you say, there was mass protest against this. The Catholic Church were on the islands where we were aware, and were, you know, these were their parishioners that were getting scooped up uh, by the slave trade. And, you know, if you think of the context at the time, uh, it was very close to the American Civil War. Uh, slavery was outlawed by you know, the British Empire and by many countries at mm. this point. So uh, slavery, not as popular as it once was. Um, and you know, this, that is basically what this was. Like, this is 150 years ago. It's, it's nothing. Yeah. Um, and also they got uh, the, I think it was the French embassy in Peru or the French minister in Peru. He weighed in to condemn it as well. So Peru kind of put up their hands and said, mea culpa, look, you know, we didn't know where they were coming from or, you know, this kind of thing. They, they made their excuses. Um, and what they then did was they started assembling all of the surviving Polynesians in this uh, city called Cayo uh, for repatriation. So they they get them off, you know, Bird Turret Island, the few of them that survived and these various other, you know, plantations and, uh, uh, and, and so on. And they collected them in Cayo. Oh, boy. So in Cayo, there was an American whaling ship called the Ellen Snow. Uh, and it sent their crew into uh, into port. One of the crew had smallpox. Mm. Smallpox started spreading rapidly in Cayo and in Peru generally and was a massive uh, a health scare. Yeah. And so they did not inoculate the Polynesians. And basically they all died. Uh, standing on the dock waiting to go home the few who had survived the slavery um, so there was 85 Easter Islanders died on the way back and out of the 1500 that were taken only 12 made it home oh. that is um, that is a more than 99% fatality rate just for That's obscene for number fans there uh, so Ooh. now <laughs> we're not done because one of the 12 he uh, had a little bit of smallpox himself. Come on. So, of the remaining 1,500 who were left in the island, so, you know, it was 3,000, went down to 1,500. So, from the 1,500 we have left, they now basically all get smallpox. And apparently, from the accounts of what happened, so many perished during this 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 rampant run of smallpox on the island, they, they even stopped burying some of the bodies because there were just, there was just too many. So... Through the slavery and the subsequent disease, their number went from about 3,000 or thereabouts to maybe a few hundred at the most. I saw in 1877, the French took a survey and found 178 people. Yeah, that's that's what we're dealing with. And of those, only, I think, fi- so I think only 30 extinct. or 40 of those had any children. Yeah, so that, like- that those are the ancestors of all modern Rapa Nui people. So... I found this account of um, when we were talking about the 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 Uriki Mao, the, the you know the king of Easter Island who died in you know on Bird Turret Island or or, or somewhere in Peru. Um, the next Uriki Mao and the last Uriki Mao, he was distinguished by his intelligence and his excellent dispositions. However, he was also only twelve years of age, and he was known uh, as Kerekorio, which was the kind of island version of Gregoire, which was more a Christian name. Uh, and I have a, a quote here. Uh, one still has for him a certain respect. One still brings him the fruits of yams, but he in no way intervenes in island affairs. The power is always usurped by several usurpers, each more audacious, more wicked than the other, who succeed one another each year, tyrannizing the population, aggravating its misery, and accelerating its complete dissolution. Uh, he dies aged 13, leaving no heir. So, moving on. Wow. 
So you had the the we said earlier that the, you had about sort of fifty people, maybe around fifty people who mm-hmm. first colonized the island, and a after years what you know, we don't really know exactly how long they've been there, but roughly a thousand years, they were back down to yeah. almost that number. That's that's horrifying. Um, it's well, hold you know, on, <laughs> a thousand years of procreation, and they're back to where they started, back to square one. Okay, so things are bad, really, really bad. And things are about to get a bit worse. Uh, Jean-Baptiste Dutroux Bornier demands it to be so. So he was a uh, a French sailor. Um, He gradually worked up to being a captain of a vessel and a part owner of the vessel. But he seems to have, you know, fallen in with kind of semi-criminal elements, people with serious gambling debts. Uh, He was actually uh, pardoned of a death sentence, I think in, in Peru, by none other than Edmund de Lesseps, who was first cousin of Ferdinand de Lesseps, if if we you recall back to Panama. Uh, the Suez Canal guy. Ah. So he he settled in uh in in Easter Island eventually. He, I think he had, he had gone through, he had left off some um uh, some missionaries uh in maybe eighteen sixty seven, I think the year before, and then he came back. Uh he obviously saw a bit of an opportunity. Um he abandoned his family, basically. He had a, a wife in France. That's, that's the last we're going to hear of her, pretty much. Uh, he bought up a bunch of land as kind of a, a private person and started, uh, I think he started importing sheep uh, to have a sort of a, a farming concern there. He starts, you know, recruiting henchmen from a mix of the locals and people that he brings in. Some of his, you know, gambling debt kind of guys that he was associating with. It's never good when you have henchmen. A lot of what I was reading was poorly translated from Spanish, so I'm I mean, I'm, I'm not clear. Claims are hard to come by, but yeah, basically sure. it was you know he he would intimidate locals. Uh, he had some firearms. He would just kind of wander around hanging people and turn the place into his own little fiefdom. Uh, the Catholic Church kind of well initially he he had kind of uh, appealed to them. Uh, and then because he was doing so many things against their parishioners, they evacuated their their group out, uh, I think maybe back to Tahiti or I, I forget actually where they evacuated to. So so this guy was terrorizing the island and they just. Yeah, they, just they didn't fancy being terrorized. With them, bringing Let's with them. Get out of here. Like the most Christian. Wow. That- he ran it for several years as governor. He also he married a, a local or married, you know, abducted uh, a local woman and married her. Um, and called her his queen. The title had no legitimacy behind it and wasn't recognized by by the locals at all, but it was just, he, he felt it kind of helped with window dressing. He also, oh God, yeah, he he started shipping out Rapa Nui to Tahiti to work for some of his backers. So a little bit more kind of slave trade aspect again. Six years later, there was just 111 people living on Easter Island. In 1877, he died, probably was killed sorry 1876 uh the, the quote in the killed. wikipedia article is in 1876 he was murdered in an argument over a dress though his kidnapping of pubescent girls may have also motivated his killers yeah <laughs> <laughs> Which, that's uh, something of I'd, an understatement I would I'd, imagine. I'd say it, i'd say it would have yeah yeah uh, he yeah. sounds pretty awful uh he was much hated much maligned uh he he brought a little bit more slavery back and just kind of he ruled this ruined uh island for his own gain and eventually they they kind of did away with him but yeah uh one of one of the things that that happened on his watch was uh the 
HMS Topaz, uh, which was built in 1858, so a, a British naval vessel. It uh, it dropped anchor in Easter Island in 1868, uh, and in in their account, they were gifted one of the Moai, and I it was called a Hoa Hakananaya, uh, and they shipped it back to Britain where it still resides in the British Museum. Uh, I actually work in, in London, so uh, I took a, a a very tight lunch break to run across the city and went and had a look. So I'm here in the British Museum uh, in front of Hoa Hakanan and I. Uh, just walking around, you can hear it's, it's pretty busy here. Uh, it's in the living and dying section of the museum. Uh, from the front, it's maybe about eight feet high. Uh, one-third head, two-thirds body, uh, with uh, prominent nipples uh, about halfway up. Nose is broad, mouth is broad, and it looks exactly like what you'd expect it to look like. Uh, you can see hands down by its sides. Uh, I'm just going around the back now, where there's a lot of, I guess you'd call it inscription. Uh, it's kind of a circle in the back. It actually almost looks like a, a, a Pagliacci crying clown face, two little pits in the shoulder blades, a circle in the back, and then sort of a, an arch just below that. Um, there's actually, I can just see from here, there's like a, a hole in the stone. It's very porous. It definitely looks like volcanic, volcanic rock. And there's like a, a wooden um, plug, or maybe it's stone, but it looks like wood. It's created uh, right in the butt, as it were. Uh, it's on a raised plinth in the middle of uh, a larger exhibit about just general indigenous uh, peoples from all over the world. So yeah, pretty weird place to run into them. So all of that, the slavery, the TB, and the French quote-unquote king all happened within, and smallpox all happened within 15 years or about so? 15 years, yeah, all yep. that. Wow. So, okay, can you can you give us some good news, Joe? Is there anything anything um, to to brighten up this story after this point? I mean, it is is less bad. Uh, okay. So after That's about as good um, as we can hope for, I guess. After the that uh, that king was killed, I believe his property was actually technically owned by the Maison Brande company. Mm. Um so there's a guy who comes into the picture now called Alexander Ari Ari Ipea Just Alexander uh, Salmon Jr. Ah. And he was a, an English Jewish Tahitian. His father was an English merchant. He was working as secretary to Queen Pamare of Tahiti. He fell in love with her 20-year-old adopted sister. They got married. The Queen had to, like, change the law for a week so he could marry, an outsider could marry a Tahitian. Um, and... His daughter, his eldest daughter, married her uncle, who was the future king, and became the de facto ruler of Tahiti into the future. Mm. So um, it's this weird kind of European Polynesian family. Um, when his father died, Alexander Salmon inherited the business, and that included the sheep ranch in Easter Island. Um, so I think the Chibonier was in some way an agent of this company. Uh, but I, I, I wouldn't swear to the details. Um, but whichever way it worked out, after his assassination, Salmon moved to the island with um, 20 
Tahitian workers and also with some Rapa Nui indentured servants mm. he had had working on his coconut plantations in Tahiti. So th- those people who were exported to right. Tahiti uh, that you spoke of, some of their contracts were had expired at this point and so they were able to come back to Rapa Nui with, uh, with salmon. So that that's an interesting angle. And as a result, he spoke some of the language pretty right. badly, but uh, he learned it from these these um, indentured workers. Uh, he was a Jew and a non-religious one at that, so the church wasn't really a fan, mm. wasn't going to play their game. And in response to this, the Bishop of Tahiti appointed uh, a particularly pious Rapa Nui guy called Tekena, and he was baptised Atamu, which is Adam. Yeah. He appointed him as king of Rapa Nui as a sort of a a figure to resist the the Maison Brande company uh, pushing in on, on church influence. Um, nowadays, the main road in uh, Hangaroa is named after Tekena, so that's, uh, he's clearly still well thought of. Right. But it was a big Tahitian influence on the language and culture started here because you've got 20 Tahitians and maybe 150 Rapa Nui, so like it's going to have an impact. It's a big percentage of the population. Salmon acted as a guide when the SMS Hyena, a German vessel, and also some British and US vessels came to do kind of archaeology and historical stuff. Um, he met a dodgy end. He was arrested for assault and battery somewhere in Polynesia and then got sent off to the Tuamoto Islands to collect folklore. And then eventually, as he was dying in penury in San Francisco, he was involved in a scam trying to marry the ex-queen of Hawaii. This is a for, Tamu. For money. This, no, this is uh, Alex Salmon. Oh, the, Salmon. The merchant. Right. But his involvement with the island ends in 1888 when he basically sold his holdings to Chile. And his holdings are basically the entire island. At this point, most of the island is, is a sheep farm owned by Alex Salmon. Alexander Salmon. It's not, a, it's not a huge island, as we've no. already said. So, And the natives are walled into this village of Hangaroa, which is the modern day capital, as the livestock roamed free. So this isn't this isn't great. Um I don't think he was considered as bad as, as his predecessor, but he did sell them to Chile, uh, who had had a vague interest. They, the Chilean ship had come in eighteen thirty seven. Um but at at this point they wanted a kind of a they wanted Easter Island as a status symbol, a kind of a it was the last unclaimed inhabited island in the Pacific. So they signed a treaty with um with the local chiefs that the chiefs didn't understand. Um, um I, I was reading uh it was on a like a uh indigenous peoples kind of forum mm-hmm. and there was uh, some account I I I don't necessarily know how, how true this is, but what the, that they had uh, two separate contracts. One of which was what was presented to the Rapa Nui, mm-hmm. and the other was in Spanish and was worded differently. Uh, yeah. And the the one for the Rapa Nui, which I think was was in English, maybe, was "We Rapa Nui welcome you as friends. We allow you to stay on our land and trade with us as friends." Whereas the Chilean uh, government's contract, I, I think read, there was a term limit as well. I think it was meant to be a twelve year agreement or something. Uh, but the the other part was uh, "We Rapa Nui agree to cede our island without reservation to the state of Chile forever." Yeah, so. Ooh, not great. Do you agree to give up your island forever? Huh? And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, just just sign here. 
just uh, oh, okay. yes. Like, um, so Chilean businessman Enrique Merlet took over the sheep ranch. He built a wall around Hangaroa, um, and made them even more restricted. Then he sold his interest to the Williamson Balfour Company, which is a Scottish-owned company, and they offen- they essentially became sovereign over the island. And they ran it until 1953, when Chile refused to renew the lease and the Navy took over. So I looked into it. Mm. There still exists a William Balfour company, and mm. it the business is now importing uh, BMWs into Chile. So they still exist. Yeah. And just uh, during this period, 1890, the, param- the, the newly elected king, Simeon Riro Kainga, was pretty annoyed about the way he was being treated. So he decided to go to Chile with two of his ministers to express concern to the government about the way the company was ruling things, not letting them fish or leave the island or plant crops, stealing their land, you know, Mm. normal stuff. Uh, And the only way to get to the mainland was by a company ship. And when he reached Valparaiso, he was poisoned on the orders of the company owner and died a day later. Oh, I did read that. So that, that happened. So. Take a break. All right. Let's take a quick break, and yeah, hopefully things will get better in the 20th century. Let's keep our fingers crossed. shifts to England for a second where Catherine and William Scoresby Routledge uh, were both academics of various kinds neither of them really archaeologists but they it was the period of gentleman scholars you could do whatever you like they were wealthy so they were wealthy he really sounds like a gentleman scholar William Scoresby Uh, Routledge William Scoresby Routledge yeah yeah, yeah, definitely Um, so he was a physician I think and she was but she couldn't get a degree from Oxford because she was a woman. But she went and <gasps> learned all this stuff. Never in, in fact, all my um, life. Trinity College Dublin gave her an honorary degree in modern history because they did give women degrees. So, um, yeah, they were interested in this um, story of petroglyphs and, and Polynesian script in the various caves of, of uh, East Island and, and also the Moai and the British Museum that Mark just visited. Um, got their attention. So they started putting together this uh, expedition called the Mana Expedition. Mana being that that kind of difficult to define Polynesian Spiritual religious concepts. good vibrations. Yeah. Um, but they took it to mean good luck in a simplistic way. Good vibes. Um, <laughs> the good vibes cruise. Yeah, and, and Catherine <laughs> had some experience in ethnographic techniques when they lived in, in Africa, in British East Africa. And done a little bit of excavating and had learned a little bit about how to collect folklore and that sort of thing. They wanted to find out uh, who the settlers were, like who the indigenous settlers were, where who they came are from. Who you? Uh, you there? Who are you? I've got in my notes, what's up with the statues is one of their questions. I think it's phrased better <laughs> in, the, in the paper I read. And how do they relate to the modern? Who are you and what's up some, with these statues? 
Um, they brought on Lieutenant David Ronald Ritchie as an, a naval navigator so that the Navy lent him to this expedition to help them get there. And he was meant to collect some intelligence along the way. But it was a bit of a shambles. Um, they had OGS Crawford, who later became a very famous archaeologist, with them for... The, I think they only got to the Canaries Islands with him and he eventually just had a, had a complete falling out with the Routledges and described the whole thing as an archaeological fiasco, which I think is fair, uh, given this was the advice that the British Museum's T.A. Joyce gave to the to the um, expedition. Uh, he was on their scientific advisory commission and he wrote, uh, there's no need to use the care and excavation there that is necessary in Egypt. You don't expect to find stratified remains which it is possible to date by their position. And as a result, I feel you would do more there with a spoon than with a spade elsewhere. So he's essentially saying, just fire away, dig everything up. Don't worry about where it is. Don't be too yeah. scientific. We just want the big stone heads. <laughs> um, they're big, they're stone, they're heads. Don't complicate it. The book Mystery of Easter Island that, that Catherine Routledge wrote after her time really put it on the map. The archaeological work was a bit shoddy. But they did bring in some Rapa Nui people to help as chief consultants, like Chief Juan Tepano uh, and Antonio Hoa Pacomio. And they sort of were very helpful with mapping the place, which they did well. They dug out some of the caves in the Orongo complex, the Birdman Cult Center. But again, it was, was very unscientific. But Catherine did some extensive genealogical work and was able to identify the connections of... 200 individuals back three generations so that the population is now about 250 so it's it's going back in the right direction and she was able to figure out who like a family tree for the whole island um and also a list of birdmen i think about 30 or 40 birdmen um and collected stories and cross-referenced everything to try and get a true image so she did that work i think it's largely considered quite well and it's something you noted in your in your uh clip earlier mark that the she excavated a statue called papa uh because it was a i don't know big daddy i don't know what she called it <laughs> i love that. it when you call me big um, papa <laughs> and she noticed that they had these ring and girdle tattoos on their back mm-hmm. and these matched the now banned tattoos that were given to children at the orongo ceremonies according to her talking with elders about their history so this, for her, shows a distinct cultural continuity between the statues and the current inhabitants. And yeah, she also described 260 of the Ahu platforms, linked them to their various clans, and her book was, uh, was, was important. And while she was there, um, there was a small rebellion in the village of Hangaroa, of the natives rebelling against their being trapped in this village while, while some English guy sh- farmed sheep on the rest of the island, eating all of the vegetation. And it was led by a native kind of prophet woman called Ngata. She was a a Catholic catechist, but also used very... um, She probably wasn't very uh, dogmatically Roman Catholic, put it that way. Uh, But she used religious language to lead this rebellion in 1914. Catherine Routledge apparently helped defuse some of the conflict, but when a Chilean warship arrived to put an end (laughs) to it, um, everything just quieted down. Uh, but the captain was impressed that the native population hadn't killed their ranch manager, given how terrible he was. Well, so, well done, guys. <laughs> he was going, oh, you oh, showed boy. great restraint, uh, but I'm still here in a gunship. Yeah. 
so when Roger was there, uh, she she crossed over into the period of, of World War One. Um, I mean, Easter Island was essentially, you know, didn't really, it, it definitely didn't know about World War One for quite a time. Um, uh, several ships turned up, all German. They were going from the China station, going on to Valparaiso in, in, in Chile. There was four warships and there was a few colliers, so like uh, coal fuel ships, basically, and smaller ships. They didn't talk, the Germans didn't talk about the the war in Europe. Uh, and the people on the island had no idea that there was a World War One that had actually kicked off. The Germans were apparently spooked by, and it was interesting that you were talking about the, the, the ceremonial use of the fires, Joe. Uh, four large fires were lit when the nights that they were there. And it spooked them massively to the point that they actually went further off the coast of Easter Island because uh, they thought it was down to the English, the English uh, uh, cattle owners who were there uh, farming the land. So the Germans were suspicious that the English might have some idea of what was happening. And Routledge said that they covered up the best of their archaeological finds because they were a little bit suspicious of all of these Germans who suddenly turned up. Uh, They did write letters and posted them with the Germans. And to their credit, almost all the letters uh, subsequently arrived. Also, uh, uh, Edmonds, who was the guy, he was the the cow farmer, he sold them a thousand pounds worth of meat and turned down the offer of uh, uh, gold uh, opting for a check instead, which he apparently later sadly lamented because, you know, that check bounced because the Kaiser fell. Hmm. The Germans said they had no newspapers, which was, you know, probably rubbish. They were probably just trying to keep the, the English who were on the island in the dark. Uh, but the, apparently the English overheard them talking a lot of stuff about Germany's be going to be on top, baby. Uh, and all this like really like super patriotic language. And the English were like, yeah, those, those Germans really love Germany. That's, that's <laughs> nice to see. Nice to see. Uh, and they had no idea that World War One had started because uh, that might have changed things somewhat in yeah. terms of the selling them meat and mm-hmm. uh, cooperating with them uh, wholeheartedly. But uh, yeah. In the 20s, the Bishop of Chile, Rafael Edwards, came to see the conditions for himself. He didn't like what he saw. His intervention with government led to an end of company rule and they were given further uh, civil rights and eventually citizenship in, I think, yeah, in 1966. So that recently, uh, like there are still people alive who weren't citizens of Chile. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also the expedition of Thor Heyerdahl around this time, mm-hmm. who's a Norwegian explorer. And he uh, set out to prove the prevailing theory again at this time was that um, the Polynesians ha- in the area had originated from Asia rather than South America, mm-hmm. I believe. And yep. uh Still is, but he had a different one for some reason. He had a different theory, yeah. And uh, fun side note, this is the the, the podcast connection that I was talking about. He served with the Free Norwegian Forces in Lapland during the Second World War before he made this, before he went to explore Easter Island. He was disputing the theory that Polynesian society uh, descended from Asian ancestors. Scientists at the time were sort of very vehemently arguing that you couldn't sail the breadth of the Pacific Ocean in a balsa wood craft, which is what they would have needed to use if they were coming from South America. Yep. So he uh, had this uh, very famous Kontiki expedition where he and four of the Norwegians built uh, a balsa wood raft and sailed it for over 100 days, uh, over 8,000 kilometers or 5,000 miles to the Tuamotu Islands. Um, Yeah, and then in 1955, he arrives in Easter Island and works with the Rapa Nui to carve out. He asked them if if they can show him how they made uh, the, the Moai. It has and been two so. years since anyone did, but yeah, yeah, yeah. they do so, uh, and it, it actually it, there's some interesting footage actually of uh, hmm. his expedition. They uh, very quickly make something a, that looks plausibly like a moai. Very quickly, yeah. yeah. 
kind uh, of over the course of a couple adding, of weeks, I think. Adding credence to the idea that you don't need this massive amount of people to do it. Yeah. Thirty thousand people to mm, make one yeah. stone head. And he, he he tried transporting it, didn't he? Yeah, so he asked them to transport it and uh apparently maybe maybe the art was lost uh mm. in the mm-hmm. kind of intervening years, but it the the footage that I saw in the kind of documentary that I was watching showed that they just laid it down on its side and attached ropes to it and just got 180 people to try and pull it just mm. across the ground, which, according didn't to work. scientific analysis, didn't happen with the original Moai because they would have been quite badly damaged by that process. Mm. So the walking them like a wardrobe uh, theory is probably more likely. But it was but, a very interesting experiment. I think they call it experimental archaeology. He was probably yeah. an early proponent of that. Kind of, could it be done? You know, could you sail there? That's some uh, myth, you... mythbuster shit. Yeah, exactly. It and is. It, it, it is. It was valuable to show that you know this wouldn't have worked. This lying them on their back on a wooden sledge isn't the way it could have been done. So let's yep. you know you can you can put a pin in that and move on. So next we have the intervention of one uh, Pinochet, Mark. Augusto Pinochet. Yeah. Every uh, every uh, podcast needs a South American strongman to uh, just it does. horn in. It, it seems like it. Yeah. Augusto Pinochet. Uh, you may have heard of him. I I, I don't know. Uh, certainly, he's very well known in the UK because he was bezies with uh, Margaret Thatcher uh, back in the day. Oh, and yeah. I, I remember when I was younger, uh, Pinochet came to the UK for I think treatment. And everyone was like, this guy's a murdering psychopath, what he is doing. Uh, so, you know, by 1973, Pinochet is effectively head of Easter Island because he's head of uh, Chile and Chile mm-hmm. says that they own Easter Island. Did he ever visit? He visited three times oh, and great. it could have been four times, actually. Um, there is a, a bit of footage of, of one of his visits. Maybe we can just drop in a bit of audio because I think they, they sang like a welcome song to, to oh, Pinochet. We can maybe nice. drop that in here. Let's do that now. So, yeah, he, he visited three times. Uh, it could have been four, but uh, the fourth time he visited, he decided to cancel uh, because the US were starting to be a little critical of his regime, uh, of all the thousands of people he'd killed and the tens of thousands of people he had tortured. But the fourth time, he uh, decided not to because the US were opening this new runway, which they had p- paid money to extend. And the idea was that it was going to be an emergency landing strip for the space shuttle. Oh, cool. Initially, the, the the space shuttle program was going to have one base in California and one base in Florida. Uh, for Florida, the, the the landing strip was going to be in Dakar in Senegal. And for California, the base was going to be in Easter Island. So they extended it by, I think, several thousand feet. But it ended up never being used. Uh, after the Challenger disaster, they decided to basically scrap the California base and just base it out of uh, the Cape Kennedy, sorry, the Kennedy Space Center and uh, uh, in Florida as well. And it was just never used. They spent, I think, you know, millions, even billions on the thing uh, and uh, never, never got used. But there was much pomp and uh, circumstance over when it was opened. And there was a lot of kind of people talking about, eh, is this space shuttle related or is this much more Cold War related? Mm. Uh, Julio Alberto Hotu, who is, um, he would go on to be the, uh, you know, the, the the head of the Rapa Nui people. Uh, but he also served in the Chilean Navy. He said... We don't want Star Wars here. We are afraid if war comes, we will be a target. 
Uh, this arrangement has been reached without consulting us and without our consent. This is Ronald Reagan's Star Wars, not the... Yeah, spa- space lasers, space basically. Lasers. Uh, <laughs> Reagan was going a bit mad at the time and uh, was saying any old kind of nonsense. So Pinochet, one of the one of the opinions I read as to why he came so many times as an authoritarian, he was very much trying to enforce an idea of Chileanness. Uh, so he wanted, you know, uh, Rapa Nui to be more like Chile. Uh, but at the same time, he wasn't really much beloved of the international community because of all of the corpses and torturing. So if he wanted a big, splashy, you know, foreign visit kind of thing, he kind of had to go to Easter Island because not many other people wanted him there. He, he came to the UK, I think, uh, more than once. Um, but yeah, he was persona non grata with many so but it's uh, good footage of being beloved by people exactly. wearing brass and, skirts and yeah and as you probably heard from the clip is you know sounds very positive and all happy and he's there in his resplendent military uniform mm. and all of that even though you know Pinochet was in charge didn't really change much I mean the, the Rapa Nui people already had a pretty bad go of it so but they were now citizens and you know citizens Chile and, was disinterested in their existence equally in, under the dictatorship as before and in 1979, the, the one maybe significant thing they did, uh, they started a, a program of um, introducing land ownership within the Chilean governmental system. The point being that uh, Chile was giving the locals the right to own land. Okay. But the locals, it kind of split the locals where they, um, some were like, who is Chile to be saying that I own my own land? Fair enough. But then for some, they were, you know, they kind of opted for that because they could see when where the writing was on the wall that like Chile is in charge. As as much as I can get out of these guys, I probably should because I mightn't get this this chance again. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it maybe uh, stymied political resistance to Pinochet a little bit. And I think there was subsequently there was other similar programs and, and legislation, but it was known as uh, Pinochet's Law uh, in 1979 as it was introduced. Okay. So where are we at today? Uh, that's a good question. Um, it's I mean it's strange. I mean, like it, there's 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 not. I mean, the 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 news that I've seen or the the more current things that I've seen are generally focusing on the local native population, uh, how they're dealing with the influx of tourism, which is really mm-hmm. the only kind of industry they have, but also them trying to scrabble back some amount of their their culture, trying to get some amount of autonomy and yeah. representation from the Chilean government. They're still a part of this region of Valparaiso, which is like a, a, a province of Chile, like thousands of miles away, and they're just a part of it. They don't really even have their own dedicated province. administrative yeah. province. Yeah, which is nuts. Yeah, and I think about half the population are Rapa Nui ethnically, and the other half are Chilean mm-hmm. or Tahitian. So I think there's a bit of tension sometimes between between indigenous people and the rest in terms yeah. of who owns what, which I understand. I did read something, but I couldn't find much detail, on a, in 2015, a group called the Rapa Nui Parliament yeah. um, took over a lot of the island. So they kind of booted out the Chilean park rangers. They said, we're relieving you of duty, and the park rangers, uh, who, like most of the islands, are national parks, so they, yeah. they're in charge of entry and exit. And they uh, they kind of stepped down. They didn't fight. And I, I think that lasted perhaps for a number of months that the, there were roadblocks and so on. Mm-hmm. But I, 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 ca- I can't say for certain whether that's been resolved. But definitely there is some, some movements like that of people, indigenous people trying to take more control of the island and access to the island and get more out of the tourism industry mm-hmm. uh, for the island. 
which I think is um isn't that unreasonable given the history hasn't been so kind. Yeah, there, I mean, there, there's a few a few other elements. I mean, I, I read about um so a, a push to try to get the the language to be used more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Spanish is is the day to day language, but there is some still usage of uh, Rapa Nui. I, I listened to a podcast from I think it was a BBC podcast talking about um uh, trying to bring it back via uh, via music. And they were talking to a musician in, in Rapa Nui and she was kind of saying that, that that's basically the only way we can kind of do it is to yep. keep it going in the ceremonies, keep it going in the music. I and did she hear was some modern kind of R&B slash traditional music. Oh, uh, Lord. Which is kind of cool, actually. It sounds okay. pretty nice. Uh, they have a big problem with uh, waste disposal uh, because they've, they've uh, tourism is the main, is the main mm. industry. And they have, I mean, I mean, accounts differ, but I've read about 80,000 tourists a year. Uh, you can get there from I think uh, Santiago in Chile, yep. but that's uh, the and only Lima, route. Lima sometimes. As well. Oh really? Oh wow. Yeah. Okay, I could only find the one route. And I think there's some occasionally, maybe once a week, there's a flight to Tahiti. I know some people are doing round the world tours use it as a ah. as a jumping off point, but it's, it's much less frequent. Ah, okay. I think Santiago to Chile there's a regular. Yeah, maybe I think it's daily, the only but... scheduled regular. Mm. There's probably you know planes you can charter and options you would have that way. Plus, yeah. it, it should be it should be noted that like uh, these days, because again because it's so isolated, like ev- literally almost everything that they use on the island, like all the food and yep. pretty much yeah. everything that they you know because it's such a barren place, like everything that they need has to be flown in by by plane. So they're very very reliant on kind of things being shipped in every day. I, I read that they have. Um... 80,000 tourists a year and they produce 20 tons of rubbish a day including make uh, a few more so either. only in the last couple of years they've, they've actually had a, a recycling plant and a, a hospital installed but they're according to locals they're not they're not particularly good quality or fit for purpose but they they can recycle so much of it but they the rest of it they just have to use landfill for it mm-hmm. they just dump it in the ground um because it's actually too expensive like there are companies who would buy you know their recycled glass and their plastics and so on but they would have to ship it thousands yeah. of miles to do that and that actually means there's they're that, paying there's to that do big that. crater they could fill up with rubbish oh god oh god yeah. uh, yeah. uh in 1995 unesco named uh, the island a world heritage site so you would hope that that would give it some protection from you yeah. know uh landfilling and that sort of thing but uh, you know. maybe not They've also started to yeah. reintroduce uh, native Pacific plants to try and regenerate the soil because there's a lot of soil erosion, particularly on the north of the island. Mm. Uh, so they're bringing in plants from nearby. Well, re, you know, I say that as a relative thing, but nearby, um, yeah, n- nearby yeah. islands to kind of, you know, th- there was early in the 20th century eucalyptus trees were introduced as kind of windbreakers, and they actually made the soil very acidic. So that wasn't a great oh, move. Oh God. Uh, like it, it stopped the erosion, but made the soil bad. Yeah. So um, they, they're trying now embarking on projects uh, led by indigenous people to sort of regenerate the island, as it were. So um, that, that's a long term project. But uh, it's... in terms of flora and fauna, like there's there's not really a whole lot. Person, I, I don't know about you guys. There's not a, much, a lot that I could find. Yeah, there's not very much. Like Wait, there there was from... plenty yeah. of like sort of varying species of seabirds, like. Uh, I've heard it was over 30 resident species. At, at one point, it was mm-hmm. possibly like the world's uh, kind of like capital of uh, seabirds. Seabirds, yep. seabirds. Yeah. there and, were no people. <laughs> yeah. And now there are no. Now there are pretty much none, or none to be found on, found on the main island, at least. 
So yeah. I, I was looking for were... things like, uh, like I mean, when we look at other you know countries and, and islands and stuff, we try to look at uh, aspects <laughs> of culture as well. I found I looked for sport. All I could find that there 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 was an intermittent club called CF Rapa Nui. Uh, and they have a small stadium there. Uh, the team played two unofficial games against uh, a team from the Juan Fernandez Islands in 1996 and 2000, so four years apart. Right. Uh, and they played their first official match on the 5th of August 2009 in the first round of the Copa Chile 2009. They lost 4-0 against Colo Colo. Uh, uh, and the oh, only other thing I could Colo find... Colo Colo was the name of the ship that first visited Rapa Nui. That's kind oh, of really? weird. That is a bit weird. Yeah, in eighteen thirty-seven, oh. I didn't, I didn't say the name. That's really strange. Um, and the Red Bull. So they lost the Cola Cola again. They they lost the Cola Cola again, mm. and Red Bull turned up apparently to do a round of cliff diving there. You know, they do like extreme sports events, and they did. Yeah. Jump jumping into the water from a great height. I did. Um, I did look yeah. at that. Well, I couldn't find if yeah. that was uh, the same the same cliffs as they used for the Birdman contest. I mm. I assume probably yeah, I was wasn't. But um, yeah, yeah I, I couldn't, I couldn't find, I couldn't either confirm nor deny that. But uh, yeah, that that's pretty much it for sports as far as I could find. I mean, it's again a very small population. There's only about five thousand, six thousand people. Five, six thousand, yeah. Uh, yeah. In terms of like further reading, I, I'll, I'll put some stuff in the show notes, some links. But I would really recommend the BBC uh, Mysteries of the World uh, documentary. That was if, very helpful, yeah, he, in the research. If you want, was... particularly if you want to see the island, mm. he rides around yeah. the, the island on horseback, and you can really see the uh, landscape and the. A lot of the Moai have now been raised again by restorationists and by various archaeologists, so you can kind of see more what it might have looked like three hundred years ago. There's also a, an AP video of uh, Thor Heyerdahl's expedition and like mm. the the natives carving out the Moai and that kind of thing. That's that's also quite interesting if if you're interested in the. The Moai, particularly, uh, we should also say there's. Uh, I don't know about you guys. I I I I leaned not too heavily, but I I, I did find it quite interesting. The stuff you should know podcast. Um, yeah, it is the, about, yeah, on the on the population collapse, which is yeah. you know worth worth checking it's out. Quite interesting, yeah. Uh, I there yeah. was one thing just that you mentioned Heyerdahl. Um, he was talking about the the conspiracy theories about the building of the 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 Moai. And I just liked his explanation, which kind of, it does kind of kill it dead. Why would spacemen have left broken stone picks in the quarries? They would have had better tools. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I rather like that. All right. All right. <laughs> so as we've mentioned, you can check out the show notes. That's where all the links that we've mentioned will be. There's pictures. Uh, you can find probably find the flag there uh, and plenty of further reading if you're interested. We should also thank our Kickstarter backers. Uh, this week, we're going to thank Alec Richman and Nick Eisen, who were two of the very early backers of uh, the Kickstarter campaign. Thanks, Thanks to those guys. guys. You both are awesome. So that's our show for this week. Uh, thanks again to our sponsor for the season, HairyBaby.com, where you can get 10% off any purchase by using the promo code 80DAYS. And thanks also to Dr. Mara Mulrooney for her help with this episode. We'll be making a longer version of her interview available on our website in the coming weeks for those of you who'd like to learn even more. I also promised Mara I'd include a plug here for an exhibition that they're launching in uh, October next year. That's October 2018, all about Rapa Nui. The exhibition will open in the Bishop Museum in Honolulu, Hawaii. Uh, and then a month later, a sister exhibition will open in the local museum on Rapa Nui Island itself. So if you're anywhere around the Pacific or have just been inspired by this, this episode to visit Easter Island, then uh, make sure to check out that exhibition. 
Uh, so yeah, that's Easter Island. That's our episode for this week. We always welcome any kind of feedback or listener emails or anything. So you can you can find more episodes of the podcast wherever you find your podcasts. You can search 80 Days Podcast on uh, Twitter or Facebook. And you can email us directly on 80dayspodcast at gmail.com. Mark, where can people find more about you on the internet? Uh, I'm on Twitter at MarkBoyle86. And I have a somewhat dormant blog called The Tone of Review. And Joe? And I also have a blog called Time to Burn. Uh, you can find me on lukejkelly.com or at the lukejkelly on Twitter. Uh, thanks very much for listening and we'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye.